0: Is there anything more satisfying than to experience the smile of God as he breaks into our lives with power, as he answers our prayers, as he wins our trust, as he waters the garden of our faith? We love life when we experience the goodness and the nearness of our God. I would encourage you, maybe even today, to spend a little bit of time thanking God for that and those evidences, those tangible evidences of His smile upon you and your life. And yet I also know that Perhaps there's nothing more disorienting than to experience trials and hardships, and to experience trials and hardships in such a way as to where we don't feel the goodness of God, or where we begin to question His presence. A crisis or an unrelenting darkness T-bones your life, leaving you shattered, A dry wind will blow across your spiritual life, leaving the crust of your soul cracked and parched. We cry out to God in anguish. We cry out to God in confusion because he seems silent, because he seems absent. I'm reminded of the words to a song by Andrew Peterson called The Silence of God. And he captures this when he says in this lyric, it's enough to drive a man crazy, it'll break a man's faith. It's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane. When he's bleeding for comfort from thy staff and thy rod, and heaven's only answer is the silence of God. As one author would put it, what we experience as God's absence or distance or silence really is only a matter of perceptions for those that are in Christ. Let me say that again. If you are a Christian this morning, what you experience as God's absence or silence is only a matter of your perception. Just like when you and I go for a walk and we walk along the street, we can think that the world is flat, that this earth is flat. Though that's not the case, so too we can experience God as being silent or absent when in fact He never truly is. So then why the feeling? Why sometimes do we walk through life and we are overwhelmed with this sense of loneliness and aloneness? And while I don't claim to understand all the mystery behind these experiences, I do believe that God's Word teaches that He designs the experience of being deprived of something so that we would long and desire something else. He gives us the experience of deprivation, of not having, so that we would yearn for something else. Absence grows desire, and the greater the desire, then the greater the satisfaction will be. And so until our faith gives way to sight, and as we make this pilgrimage in this world, What serves as the trustworthy compass in dark days is not what we feel. It's what God has said. It's who God is. It's what God has done. And so this morning, if you feel stuck and you feel deserted and you feel disoriented and you feel despairing because God seems silent and absent, Brother or sister in Christ, though that may be how it feels, that is not how he is. You are not alone. I mean, the words of Psalm 23 would remind us of this. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. God's promise to his church, Matthew 28 and giving the great commission, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. God is with you, and he speaks all of the time to you through his word. And so good news this morning, you don't have to rely on your untrustworthy impressions, but you can rely on the secure, trustworthy word of God. In the book that we began walking through this morning, the book of Exodus, will remind us of these truths again and again and again. As God's people fight despair and unbelief that is flowing from their experience that could have been perceived and was at times perceived to be God being absent or God being silent. Many years removed from the days of Exodus. And yet that's the truth that you and I are so desperately in need of even this morning. And so there is good news for you. There is good news. Light can be found in the darkest of days. There is the best solution for the worst of times. And the book of Exodus will, week after week, invite us to place a fearless faith into a faithful God. That's the invitation. Place a faith that fears nothing but God himself into the God who is faithful in all things. Exodus invites us to truly believe that God sees us, that he hears his people, that he keeps his promises to his people. And oh, church, what if we believed that? What if we believed that God saw his people and heard his people and kept his promises to his people? I wonder what sin you might walk away from. I wonder what confidence you might gain. I wonder what change may take place in your life. And so we come to the book of Exodus. Exodus means going out. And this book is going to help us understand not merely what they were set free from, but who it was that set them free. Exodus is a book about true freedom but it's meant to captivate and so arrest our souls that we would be dazzled by the one who sets free. Exodus is divided. Most uh, scholars and commentators would say in two, potentially three sections. I prefer three. And you could look at it as God's people departing Egypt. That's the first God giving of the law, that's sort of the second section. And then the last section, God's instructions for the tabernacle. And so these three sections divide the book of Exodus. And really, the the apex of each section is this truth that the God who at times, and contrary to perceptions, Seems like he's fallen asleep at the wheel, has not fallen asleep at the wheel. That this God is not deaf to the cries of his people. That this God is not inattentive to the needs of his people. This God is not an angry tyrant who enjoys to toy with the lives of his people. I think about this often. I think about Even our day, political candidates will go, and whenever they're going to make an announcement, they'll go and they'll stand in front of some building or organization, so as to say, yes, voting for me, this is sort of my interest. This is my cause. These are the things that I'm identifying myself with. And in the same way, Moses puts God front and center in this book with his people behind them against all odds to say, hey, if you want to know how this people, you want to know what what is of my interest, you want to know what cause I am ready to defend, it's my people. And so God stands at at the outset of Exodus in front of his people. And the invitation is for us to come to him, to believe on him, to love him, to treasure him, And so I'd like to pray that even this beginning sermon would help those ends be realized today. And that's not something that I can do or a sermon can do. It is something that the Spirit can do. And so let's pray that he would blow life into this word. Holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit, would you write your word into our hearts and would you use the preaching of your word to imprint your character upon our souls may we receive and believe your word may we be cheered by your word may we be comforted by your word would you glorify your word in our hearts would you make it bright and warm that we might find pleasure in it through your holy spirit would you help us think what is right By your power, would you help us walk out its truth? And so for that to happen, Lord, I need much help. We need much help. And so may the sermon that is heard be far more effective than the one that is preached. For your glory we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open them to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. Three points this morning will serve as our markers as we walk through this chapter with the intent of encouraging us, helping us better know God and better love God. Exodus chapter 1, first point, God's people are divinely blessed in a foreign land. God's people are divinely blessed in a foreign land. And we see this really in verses 1 through 7. The beginning of the book of Exodus, it begins with this genealogy of sorts. The names of those who made the trek into Egypt, all those who came. From the loins of Jacob were 70 in number. Joseph was already in Egypt. We read then in verse 6 that Joseph and his brothers died. And all of that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. As we turn to Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, those opening words really don't grab our attention with excitement and expectation. And yet to the original reader, this opening could not have been more dramatic or powerful. And so the miss this morning, if we read the beginning of Exodus and we think, uh, okay, the miss is not with the ancient author, but it's with the modern reader. This opening would have reminded a whole generation of God's people, of God's faithfulness to His promise and to His people. This opening section makes makes it as clear as possible that Exodus 1 is not merely the beginning of a new story. We, We talked about this last week. The first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, Written by Moses, not to be looked at as five distinct individual stories that are somehow not tethered together, but it really is one story. And as we approach Exodus, we're approaching part two, and that's what God's people would have heard. As they read this, they would have known. This isn't kind of, okay, now we're jumping into something completely different. This is a continuation of what God began in the book of Genesis. In fact, the first word in the Hebrew text of Exodus is not now. It's and. So as to connect what's happening in Genesis with what will happen in Exodus. And Exodus 1.1 doesn't merely begin where Genesis ends. No, it takes us back. And now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came, each one, with his household. In fact, Exodus 1 begins some 70 years earlier. This would take us back to Genesis chapter 46. If we were to go back to Genesis 46, we would read verses 2 through 4. This is what we would hear. God spoke to Israel. This is who Jacob has been renamed. God spoke to Israel in visions in the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And God said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. Some 70 years earlier, where Jacob has just learned that his son Joseph was alive in the land of Egypt, then the family sets out, because there's provision in Egypt, And on the way, the Lord speaks to Jacob, and he says, I will be with you. Not only will I be with you, I will make you a great nation there. Not only will I be with you and make you a great nation there, but I will also bring you out of there. This brief genealogy serves really as a record of those who made the trek to Egypt. They're listed. In the order in which, uh, in the order that they were born, in respect to the mothers, and so Leah's children are mentioned first, Rachel's children are mentioned second, Billah's children are mentioned third, and Zilpah's children are mentioned fourth. Seventy in all, and this genealogy really reads pretty unimpressive. The family history of Jacob is not a pretty picture. According to one scholar, it's a sordid tale of treachery and philandering and lies. In his commentary on Exodus, Phil Riken puts it this way, Joseph and his brothers had just one thing going for them. That was their God. And the most important thing about this people was God himself. Uh, this genealogy, these, this people, they bear striking resemblance to you and I today. And we read then that the generation of Joseph and his brothers died. Very interesting. Look at the connection. It seems in verse 6 that sort of the lights are beginning to dim. Joseph dies. All his brother dies. The whole generation dies. They're in a foreign land. And then verse 7, what we realize is though generations die, the promises of God never die. Verse 7, but the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty. Just to hear that, the original reader again would have heard the overtones of Genesis throughout verse 7. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That was what he called Adam to do. Genesis chapter 9, verse 7, the Lord called Noah to be fruitful and multiply and populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it the lord called abram genesis 12:2 and i will make you a great nation and i will bless you and make your name great and so shall you be a blessing and when he when he cut that covenant in genesis 17 with abram i will make you exceedingly fruitful i will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you and then he makes a promise again to isaac abraham's son genesis chapter 35 and god also said to him i am god Almighty, be fruitful and multiply a nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come forth from you. And then he makes a promise to Jacob in Genesis 46, 3. I am God, the God of your fathers. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for I will make you a great nation there. Moses cannot be any more emphatic. Everything that's about to happen is owing to the hand of God because God is faithful to his promises even as his people die. And that's exactly what we see, God's people living in a foreign land, and they are experiencing the blessing of God. And when I say blessing, I'm not talking about they're experiencing material prosperity. No, they are receiving the favor of God regardless of their circumstance. And that blessing is owing to God alone. He has kept his word, and that brings us to the second point. So God's people were not only divinely blessed in a foreign land. Number two, God's people are brutally oppressed in a foreign land. And sermon points normally don't rhyme. But we're going to run with divinely blessed and brutally oppressed this morning. God's people are brutally oppressed in a foreign land. And this is what we heard read this morning. Verse 8, now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. I mean, if we were just to read verses 1 through 7, we would think we have this taste in our mouth of the people of God prospering in Egypt. And then we hit verse 8, and everything changes. From the 70 who entered into the land to the conservative estimates of upwards of 2 million people no one would have ever guessed this turn would have happened the original audience has given the reason for the hardships that has marked them for so long you remember what we said last week exodus was written as the people of god are wandering in the wilderness And God has tasked Moses to encourage the people not to lose heart. So Moses begins, but in the very beginning, it just says, look at what God has been doing. Don't let your faith grow cold. Don't let your faith give way to unbelief. And so Moses is seeking to encourage the people of God. And even this account in Exodus 1 would have given them more clarity on what exactly led to the years of hardship and suffering. Verse 8 tells us there is a new Pharaoh, a new king, who shows up. And and most commentators would say he's either ignorant of Joseph, he has no idea that that the people of Egypt were able to prosper because of Joseph's planning and the ways in which the Lord used him. So this king and Pharaoh is either ignorant of Joseph, or he doesn't care about Joseph. Either way, he begins to play upon the fears of the Egyptians. And so what does he do? He says, let us deal wisely with them, or else they're going to multiply. And in the event of war, they will join themselves to others who hate us, and they will fight against us. Verse 11 So then this new Pharaoh and his court appointed taskmasters over them to to afflict them with hard labor. Their goal is to oppress them, to beat them down. Cruel and oppressive labor. Cruel and oppressive behavior. We'll see just what We'll, we'll get a glimpse as to what Moses saw in how the Egyptians treated the Hebrews. And with this new king, God's people move then from this protected, privileged people to a persecuted people. And verses 13 and 14 captures the severity. Again, Moses writing, even just in some ways poetically, to make sure that we don't miss the severity of the labor. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously. And they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and all kinds of labor in the field and all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. And so, in the same way that verse 7 is just overflowing with, with words and imagery that's meant. For us to have this picture that God's people multiplied greatly. They increased in Egypt. So too here in verses 13 and 14. We're meant to just feel the severity and the bitterness of their circumstance. We could put this another way. This new Pharaoh is opposed to to the people of God, fulfilling their creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And this is where the book of Exodus can begin to step on our toes. You see, if it was the blessing of God that allowed them to go from the land into Egypt, and to increase, and to multiply, and to experience favor and blessing, then we have to conclude that that same hand that guided them there in verses 1 through 7 was also the same hand who knew what would happen in 8 through 14. And maybe then we're encouraged to begin to understand that when we talk about and when we hear things about God's blessing, God's blessing does not mean the absence of hardship or the absence of suffering. In fact, Jesus would even remind His followers, these things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace, John 16, 33. As you can have peace in Christ, in the world you will have tribulation. As Paul and Barnabas are, are preaching and going around, Acts chapter 14, they're strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And this is what they're saying. This is their message. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. It's where Paul would encourage Timothy, Second Timothy chapter 3, that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so it's in this move from privileged and protected to now persecuted that verse 12 really does serve as the rally cry for the people of God. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The worst that the world could do. The worst that they could, they could impose on God's people all of the hardship, all of the adversity, all of the trial, the best shot that the world could give did not stop the plans of God. His people continued to prosper even because of and in the face of the afflictions that they they faced. In many cases, it is hardships and adversity and suffering that provides the best environment for the, for the advance of the gospel, the advance of the church. If you're like, man, I would just love to read more about how suffering advances the, the gospel, I would encourage you this afternoon, this week, just to read through the book of Acts. Watch the gospel fly forth, run forth in triumph in the midst of suffering and persecution and adversity. Pharaoh's plan does not work. He is fearful that God's people are going to get so big that they're going to then revolt. And so he says, then let's, let's throw the hardest kind of labor. Let's make them our slaves so that they can no longer be fruitful and multiply and prosper and continue to grow. And verse 12 reminds us that the more that they were afflicted, the more the Lord grew them. You read this and you just think, what's on display is the quiet faithfulness of God to fulfill His purposes and His promises. I mean, in this section, Pharaoh is the one who's making most noise. But God is sovereignly at work, and he is at work quietly. His work here isn't spectacular. It's quiet. You and I can want the spectacular work of God, but God often works quietly. The the, the truths of the first seven verses continue to hold true for the next seven verses, God's people are held and they're there in Egypt. They're in slavery by divine command under divine promise and they're awaiting divine intervention. And God led led them right here. And you say, surely this must have been a surprise to everyone. Everyone but God and even God's promise to Abram. Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. Listen to what God said to Abram at the beginning when he's calling him out and making promises to him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. God makes a staggering promise of his faithfulness, and he doesn't sugarcoat the cost of what it means to be his people. You will suffer, and you will suffer not just momentarily. There will be generations who are born and die, and they only know this suffering. 400 years. The prediction of the suffering is there. The duration of the suffering is there. And the promise of the flourishing is there. The worst of times were a part of God's plan to bless the descendants of Abraham. Listen to Genesis chapter 15, verse 14, the very next verse. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. God even tells Abraham, not only are you going to go in, and not only are you going to be oppressed, and and you're going to suffer, but I also am going to bring the people out. My promises do not die in periods of waiting. I have not forgotten When it seems I am silent. And we read this and we just think, how in the world could this be? Like, why does this happen? Like, why are those who God has chosen and led to Egypt, why are they made to suffer like this? I mean, there's certainly a host of other ways that God could have brought about the purposes for his people and spared them from suffering. Why? And maybe that's the question that you're here as you're facing whatever circumstance. And you're saying, I, I feel like God is distant. I feel like God is absent. And the question that keeps you up is, up at night is not, do you believe there's a God? Sure, I believe there's a God. It's not, do you think the God is good? Sure, I think he's good. But the question is, why? Why is he doing it this way? Like, why does it hurt? Why do I see my family and my friends suffer? Why? And again, I think in some ways, we will only know the answers to why when we are with Him in glory. But God's Word does give us a level of insight that may just be good reminders for us this morning. Why was it necessary for God's people to suffer brutally, relentlessly for 400 years? Well, because the evil one opposes the purposes of God and the lives of the people of God. And Pharaoh is representative of the evil one. This new Pharaoh is arrogantly usurping the place of God Himself, or so trying to. Why was it necessary for them to suffer? Because Egypt wasn't the land of promise. God didn't intend for Egypt to replace the land of promise. And yet, I wonder... Had Egypt not been marked with suffering, would they have longed for anything different? What if God's people had only prospered in Egypt? I think they would have been good long-term just to stay in Egypt. And friends, I think our prosperity can have a similar effect on us. And by God's good, gracious design, suffering and hardship can be used by God so that this wonderful world with so many gifts of grace is not our home. And so make sure that prosperity doesn't dampen your longing for heaven. And that's one of the gifts of suffering, is that it, suffering increases our longing for heaven. Suffering has this wonderful refining effect on us. Why is it necessary for God's people to suffer? And I think the biggest reason that the Bible would give us is that the, the suffering and the oppression reminds God's people that they are sinners in need of salvation. They are, they are sinners in need of redemption. They are sinners in need of a rescue. Abraham was familiar with the promised land. And so, why did God lead them to Egypt? Why not just speak to Abraham and take them straight there? And I think the primary reason is because God wanted to reveal their need to be rescued, their need to be delivered. God led them to Egypt to communicate the reality of their need for God's deliverance and God's gracious provision for such a deliverance that they did not earn or deserve. The rest of the Bible will look back to Exodus. It draws on this Exodus paradigm as how God delivers His people. The need for rescue and salvation in Exodus points to the gracious provision that God would one day provide in that substitutionary sacrifice, that sacrifice that Jesus would make in the place of sinners on the cross in order to deliver his people from a greater bondage than even Egyptian slavery. And so no, at no point in the Exodus story was suffering meant to slap God's people to say, you have been betrayed by your God. He is silent, he's distant, and he's absent. No, suffering was evidence of his mercy and his faithfulness to fulfill his promise to save those that were undeserving. we made to feel their plight at the end of verse 14. Their lives were made hard. Like how in the world will a rescue take place? What hope is there for these people that are enslaved? What options does God have to to save them from these dire straits? And and if I could just say a word this morning to those in here that are not Christians, thank you for being here. I would encourage you to Continue to show up to learn more about this God and what this God is committed to do, not because of the goodness of his people, because of the goodness of his character and his promise and his faithfulness to all of that. Continue to show up to learn more about this God. Have conversations with others around you about this God. It would be the joy of anyone in here to show you that what Exodus really points us to is not just the story about God's faithfulness way back then, but how his faithfulness continues even today. And every Christian in this room would say, there's something of each of us in this story, in this passage. I mean, every one of us were made for home, a place where life fully flourishes, and yet our story is one of exile looking for home, looking for the place of flourishing, and yet we cannot find it because we are exiled. We're walking around because of our sin. We're under the death penalty because of our sin. And you say, that sounds kind of mean. Just because you sin, God gives you the death penalty? This is what sin is. It's saying, I want life outside of God, and God being as As clear and gracious as he could be, that says, if you want life outside of me, understand what you're asking for is death. And so that's the just payment of such a lifestyle. And yet it's in that chaos and hopelessness and dark exile through this world that God's promise, his light breaks in. There will be a rescue, there will be a redemption from slavery of sin. And that will happen through the work of Jesus Christ. You see, here's the problem. You and I in this world created for home, and yet because of our sin, we're exiled, we're we're sent away from home. We have then turned this God-created world inward on us. And we think that we get to call the shots and we know what's best. And every time we do that, and even for one time doing that, We're left with the same result that Adam and Eve had in the garden. You are banished from my presence, says the Holy God. And the story of the Bible and the story that you in your life are trying to figure out is how in the world can I ever get back home? And the good news of the Christian faith is not if you keep working and you do enough, then you can get back home. The good news of the Christian faith Centers around Jesus who would leave his true home, would be born away from home, would wander without a home, would be crucified outside of a gate as a sign of exile and rejection. Everything that sinners deserved is what he bore. And Jesus takes our place. He experiences the exile and the wrath that his people deserve. He's cast out so that those who would repent and believe can be brought in. And he rose from the dead showing that the ultimate exodus from this life to that living foretaste, that forever life with him is possible for all who turn and believe. Friends. Friends. Don't delay. Trust in God. Turn from your sin. Come to him so that you can come home. Those are the stories that challenge us throughout the book of Exodus. And as we read this, we think, yeah, that's good. That's that's good. I I can see. I can trek there. But this is the question. Will you trust God when suffering and persecution arrives at your doorstep? Will you trust God when suffering stays? Will you trust God if he doesn't take away that painful thing? When you can't see everything that he's doing? That you don't understand the mysterious and the painful providence of God? Will you trust God when suffering lingers? The longer suffering lasts, the harder it can be to generate faith. We know he's powerful enough to remove it, but the question is, what do we do when he doesn't remove it? It may have been easy to trust at the outset, whenever you first got the diagnosis, but will you trust him three months, three years, three decades in? It may have been easy when when your year was interrupted, but will you continue to trust him when the last seven years have been interrupted? It may have been easy when your child first wandered from the faith, But what about years of wandering from the faith? It may have been easier to trust God with your singleness a decade ago. But what about today? It may have been easier when financial pressure was not as difficult, when sexual sin was not such a stronghold, When the family member died and you felt that surge of God's grace, but over time, bitterness has set in. Israel waited for 400 years. Our country is not 400 years old. There is hope for God's people in the midst of adversity. And there's hope because we hope in a God who has power over all things, and who's doing something to accomplish his will in all things. And so what hope is there for these people who, have a, who are enslaved by the most powerful ruler and nation on the planet? I mean, what options are still there for God to move? I heard a pastor one time share this story, and I thought, I can't wait to say this story. I've never found the right time to say this story. I found it today. There's a famous painting portraying Faust, the legendary German magician who gambled his soul away to the devil. And in this painting, he's sitting across from Satan in a chess match. And Satan is gloating over the checkmate of Faustus king. And Faust's facial expression is one of a defeated and despairing man. And according to the story, a famous chess master visited the art gallery one day, came across the painting, and was studying the painting. He studied it with great care and attention, and after some time, in the quietness of the art gallery, and to the surprise of others who were in the art gallery, this chess master shouted out, It's a lie! It's a lie! The king and the knight have another move. Faust has not yet been defeated. And though the Israelite circumstances appear hopeless, it's a lie. Because God always has another move. And He's going to make that move in the last point of our passage. Point number three God's people are graciously preserved in a foreign land. God's people are graciously preserved. In a foreign land. And we see this in verses 15 through 22. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah and the other who was named Pua. And he said, When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can even get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. And because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile and every daughter you are to keep alive. Pharaoh's plan of slavery and oppression does not work because any time his plans go up against the plans of God, they will fail. And so what he does is he turns then to murder. He calls on two Hebrew midwives to kill boys that are born to their mother. Girls were okay, but boys were to be put to death. These women risked their lives to be faithful to their God and to let these boys live. And for the first time in chapter 1, God is mentioned in verse 17. These midwives feared God. They had a true respect and a reverence for him, which led them to act in a way that was pleasing to him. These midwives were not national leaders. They didn't seek leadership roles in their community, but their quiet and principled resolve to obey the Lord thwarted the cruelty of this tyrant. God preserved his people on the basis of what seems to be ordinary obedience of these two women. Church, be reminded, there are no such things as insignificant acts of obedience. Obedience is always significant. And you say, well, but I'm just unimpressive. And so were they. And yet God has always taken that which is unimpressive. He's always said, give me the weak, give me the broken, so that my light may shine through them and I will receive the glory. Pharaoh calls these women in and asks them about their practices. And these women respond. And it's so interesting to me. If we go back, just what was Pharaoh's name? No one knows. This man who has tried so hard in Exodus 1 to make a name for himself is unnamed. And these ordinary unimpressive, but faithful women will be remembered by the people of God. Always. These midwives, who were called upon to be executioners of the Hebrew boys to stop the expansion and the growth of the people of God because they feared God. God gave them families so that they could contribute to the expansion and the growth of the people of God. These actions of the, the actions of the midwives really does, it forms this central theme throughout the book of Exodus. And that's this, that Israel is called to fear God above any other ruler or nation or circumstance. And so the end reads, verse 22, after murder doesn't work, then Pharaoh calls upon all Egyptians anytime they see a Hebrew boy to throw them into the Nile. And so his next step is genocide. Can you imagine the experience day in and day out? This is why it was the worst of times. Backbreaking labor, heartache for moms and dads that are giving birth to sons, and they're fearing those around them who could come at any time and kill their son. And so really the back and forth here paints a picture for us. And it's a picture of the fulfillment of what happens, what was promised in Genesis 3.15. That this idea that there would be conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And there really are two kingdoms in conflict here. And what Exodus will remind us of is that there's nothing that can stop the advance in the victory of the kingdom of our God over the kingdom of darkness. And so your daily daily struggle with sin and with suffering and with sorrow and with hardship, whether it's from a quiet prejudice from others or an open hostility from others, that's nothing more than this localized skirmish that's a part of a greater cosmic war. And so let's remember, church, that evil is fighting a losing battle. Evil will not win providence will always prevail. Why? Because God is able to work all things, even the malice and cruel intent of Pharaoh. He's able to work all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So Covenant Life Church, let's not grow weary in well-doing. 2 Thessalonians 3. Covenant Life Church, let's consider Jesus, Hebrews 12, 3, who endured from sinners such opposition against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Exodus 1 makes clear how this sovereign God is working to bring about and to accomplish his purposes in what seems to be the most quiet of ways. but he's paving the way whereby a son would come into the world by whom the kingdom of Satan would be shattered and defeated at Calvary and under whose rule one day all the kingdoms of the world would come to rest and would bow their knees. And brothers and sisters, that is where we need to rest our security. Our security doesn't rest in your faith. It doesn't rest in the courage that you have to face trials. Your your security rests in Christ who himself was made to be the object of hatred in the world, who was nailed to a cross and who rose nevertheless in triumph. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And it's because this battle belongs to him that you and I then can find the strength amid whatever hardship and suffering we're facing and we can stay in the fight and we can press on even as the battle rages because the battle belongs to the Lord. And sitting on the throne of glory, even at this moment, is the God-man, your elder brother, your Savior, your friend, Jesus the Christ. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself in and to us in and through your word. And so in this moment of silence, would you speak by your spirit, even to those that are struggling in their suffering? God, what do we take away? What do we learn as we watch the people of God endure hardship? God, help us cling to Christ. And so speak now as we listen.